Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel, and today we're talking with Marie Berry about her book, War, Women, and Power, From Violence to Mobilization in Rwanda and Bosnia. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sarah. So to start us off, can you tell us about yourself? Sure thing. I'm an assistant professor at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Um, I'm trained as a sociologist. I received my PhD in sociology from UCLA in 2015. Um, And so I'm in my third year as a faculty member here at the University of Denver. Great. How did this book come about for you? Um, The book is based, it stems from my dissertation in sociology. Um, It's been the, the primary project that I've been working on for the better part of the past decade. Um, And to tell you the truth, it actually started before I went to graduate school when I was doing work in Rwanda with a human rights organization. And I began to see all this evidence of um, the work that women were doing in their communities um, and the way in which women were mobilizing um, to join politics and to Um, really to kind of raise their voices in spaces that had been traditionally seen as kind of men's spaces. And um, I became really interested in exploring, uh, exploring this, this topic at that point. Um, So this was back in 2007 and 2008. And I've been really working on the project ever since. You start the book off with a really powerful quote. And here um, one of the, your respondents said it wasn't, you know, in terms of moving forward, it wasn't a choice. It was an obligation. And so I was hoping you could sort of set the stage as uh, as you refer to it in the book as war as a transformative state and sort of women's lived experiences in general. Absolutely. Um, the, you know, the quote you're referring to is a quote from a woman named Ignatian who in 1994 was a, a housewife living in the south of Rwanda. And when the genocide broke out, her husband, her parents, and many other members of her family were killed. And she found herself alone. And she put it to me like this in an interview. She said, to move forward wasn't a choice. It was an obligation. Either you do it or you die. Either you provide for yourself, your children, or others, or you die. And instead of dwelling on her losses, Ignatian began to focus her energy on helping children in her community. And she managed to go back to school. Eventually, she found a job with UNICEF where she was working with vulnerable kids, and soon she decided that she wanted to make a bigger impact and ran for office, for political office. Her first campaign was successful, and today she sits in Rwanda's parliament, which boasts the highest percentage of women legislators of any country in the world. And so when I mentioned that I became interested in this project back in 2007, this was right before the 2008 elections where um, Rwandans elected the world's first majority of women to its parliament. And I really became interested in in investigating whether or not this this, um, incredible um, uh, mobilization of women in, in formal political spaces in Rwanda was in spite of the mass violence that the country had experienced just years before, or whether it was in some ways because of the mass violence um, that the country had experienced in the recent past. And so I embarked on this project in an attempt to unpack um, this, this, this relationship between war and women's political mobilization and began, it became interested in looking at this as a trend across the world. Um, and, and much, much recent research has actually um, revealed something, you know, very surprising, which is that countries that have experienced war across the globe have, on average, higher levels of women in their legislatures than countries that have not experienced violence. This is... Um, this is really work by Eileen Tripp and Melanie Hughes, who have been looking into the way in which war can 
sometimes open these unexpected opportunities for women to, to, to claim increased rights and political power in their aftermath. And so the book really begins in many ways with the obvious, this, this idea that war is profoundly destructive. It devastates societies, as we know, and it ruins lives, ruptures economic systems, and, and lays waste to infrastructure in myriad ways. And most coverage of war has typically featured women as particularly harmed by violence. And we oftentimes see images of women weeping, wringing hands, oftentimes positioned as victims of sexual violence, um, of homelessness, of abuse, and of this untenable task of caring for children and the elderly in the aftermath of, of war. And so this recent research that reveals this relationship between war and women's increased political mobilization is, is quite surprising. And this is the puzzle that generates the theoretical premise of the book, which is really that while war is destructive, it is also a period of, of rapid social transformation in which institutions, social structures, and gender relations can be in flux. Yeah, something that I really liked about the book is that you really focus on women's lived experiences, and I find that to be a really powerful aspect of, of the whole book. Um, and I was sort of curious, how did you actually choose these two countries, and sort of what were your methods to gather data? Absolutely. Well, the book over the past really nine years that I've been conducting field, field research for the book, um, I mean, it was a, a tremendous tremendous privilege to be able to sit down with more than 260 women um, in both Rwanda and in Bosnia throughout the course of the research. Um, I initially designed this as a, and I talk about this in the book a bit, I actually designed this um, as a, um, a paired case comparative study, which aimed to investigate a successful case of women's political mobilization after violence, which is the case of Rwanda. And then what I saw initially as a negative case, or the case of Bosnia, where women were not um, included in formal political spaces in the aftermath of violence, and in fact experienced a a retreat or a, a decline in their in their political representation in the in the in the years at, in the immediate um, aftermath of, of violence. Um, but what actually happened, as I set out and, and was um, was conducting the interviews and was doing the research, was something that was a bit surprising and complicated. This initial setup in terms of its kind of positive negative case design. Um, uh, what, while I had, um, you know, read many, many kind of um, summaries of the low levels of women's political representation in Bosnia and had seen many, um, many, many uh, accounts celebrating the liberation of Rwandan women and, of course, they're in the political empowerment of Rwandan women, the reality in both both cases is, is, is much more complicated. And so as I was conducting the research, two things really became clear. One is that in, in in Bosnia, this was not simply a negative case. There was a tremendous amount of grassroots informal political mobilization in Bosnia by women during and in the immediate aftermath of the war. And this political agency and, and political mobilization did not look necessarily like women's participation in formal politics. It oftentimes took the form of women um, interacting in their communities uh, in, in, in novel ways, um, testifying about their experience during violence and about their sexual assault, oftentimes in front of courts, um, lobbying governments for, for rights and resources and access to information about their loved ones uh, where their loved ones had been buried in many cases. And thus, this, this idea that Bosnia represented a negative case in many ways was, was incorrect. What I found was that if we expand our understanding and definition of what women's political agency looks like, we see how war fostered similar processes of women's political mobilization in both Rwanda and Bosnia. Now, the second, the second um, kind of main point to be made here about the case selection is that Rwanda also so is not as clear a case of a positive story of women's political representation and political power as one might see at, at first glance. Um, Rwanda has received accolades for years about their strong support of, of women's um, political representation and gender equality throughout throughout all of kind of branches of government and the way in which the constitution was rewritten in the aftermath of violence and the way in which institutions and policies have been kind of reformulated to place gender equality at their, at their core. Now, the reality is that Rwanda is not a democratic country and the, um, the, the tremendous level of women in Rwanda's political space does not reflect a, um, a, a, a just 
or solely um, the the political empowerment of, of women in many ways. As I talk about at some length in the book, the um, the level of women in Rwanda's parliament in particular has been used by the political regime to distract attention from the regime's authoritarian practices more broadly. And moreover, the legislature in Rwanda simply does not have the level of political power um, that one might expect it to have in a, in a democratic setting. So the, the Parakeese comparison in many ways was a was a really um, was a was a setup that allowed that, that I departed from quite a bit and that um, when I was doing the interviews, I, 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 I was I was challenged to expand my understanding of what women's political participation looks like to look beyond the formal legislative um, representation of women and to look at the grassroots to the to the ways that women were organizing in their households and in their communities to create change and to advocate for their rights outside of, of, of formal political channels. And, and that it also required me to ask a question about whether women's inclusion is, is, a, is, a, is a reasonable and quality indicator of women's political power. Um, and these are, these are topics that I get, you know, I, I, I deal with much more in depth in the book. And I'll say just briefly about the, the interviews that the book is based on. The the the, the two, more than two hundred and sixty women that I that I interviewed for this project, um, I I attempted to to speak with women and what I kind of talked about is three categories. Although really in the end it was more like two categories. And I I, I designed the study initially to to interview women that were political elites, so women and women um, mayors, ministers, members of parliament, and so forth. Um, and then I was also interested in interviewing women that had been involved. With founding um, civil society organizations or leading held leadership positions in community organizations, and then the sort of third category of women that I was interested in targeting were were um, non elites or kind of quote unquote ordinary women. And these women were farmers, they were market vendors, they were sex workers, they were retirees, they were factory supervisors. They came from a range of different um, backgrounds in the two countries. And so, um, what 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 the, the research really consisted of was me asking them all in all of the, all these different kind of women with these different backgrounds, how war shaped their lives. And I mean, they, they, they told me incredible stories and the stories are really what, what motivates this book. Great. Thank you for that. So to start off with, you start with Rwanda. So I was hoping you could sort of give us a brief history that you provide, not, you know, not as extensive as you provide in the book, but sort of set the stage for what was happening in Rwanda. Of course. So the the story of the Rwandan genocide is is quite well known. I think at this point, um, what I do in the book is I try to trace the um, way in which women were involved in Rwandan history. Obviously, <laughs> very involved um, over the course of the past century and a half. And so I look at the changing roles that women held in their households and in their communities and at the national political level from the pre-colonial through the colonial to the post-colonial era. Um, and of course, the point of departure for the study is really the war and genocide, which broke out in Rwanda in 1990 with the invasion of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which was a rebel army that had formed in Uganda. Um, and that set off a series of, of um, uh, violent, violent years throughout the country where um, armed conflict occurred across the country um, with different dynamics and logics and speeds at different points in time. Um, the, the genocide itself began in April of 1994 um, when a plane... Pr- carrying President um, Javier Imana crashed or was shot down um, in Kigali as it attempted to land. Um, And over the course of the next few months, there was a, a tremendous and horrific outbreak of violence, um, which targeted at its, at its beginning, um, various people from different political parties, including Hutus, um, but but of, uh, slowly the the um, or not that slowly actually quite rapidly the the Tutsis in Rwanda became associated with the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which was a primarily Tutsi rebel army, and thus Tutsis became 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 to be painted as the the enemy. And so all Tutsi civilians then became targets of um, factions within um, the remnants of Habyarimana's regime. And so what what unfolded over the next few months was was the most rapid and and um, 
uh, horrific kind of um, period of mass uh, mass atrocities in, in recent history, and we and we see uh, you know throughout the book and throughout so many other other scholars' excellent research on Rwanda how women were particularly targeted and particularly made vulnerable by these, this period of violence um, through sexual uh, sexualized violence, through rape, um, and and uh, through a tremendous amount of brutality. And so, um, what I what I begin by looking at, kind of in the in the next chapter, is really how the destruction and devastation of of the, that period of violence, really between 1990 throughout the end of 1994. Um, created conditions that were so difficult for, for ordinary Rwandans to live that it became, um, it became necessary, as, the, as Ignatian's uh, story told us a few minutes ago, it became very necessary for women to take the responsibility for securing basic material needs for their families, food, water, shelter, healthcare, and so forth. And that um, what I describe in the coming kind of chapters is how that, that the urgency, the pressing urgency of those urgent needs led women outside of kind of traditional roles and even physical spaces that they had been con- confined in in many ways before to, to, and, 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 and push them to interact with others in their communities who face similar challenges and, um, and really really in, in many ways um, created conditions of life that required action to begin to, to be able to survive. Um, and so, so the, the, the kind of the, the, the important part of the historical chapter on Rwanda is really that um, we, we see a shift in the way in which women were able to interact with international organizations, interact with local government, even um, create new social networks and new sort of forms of social coping in their communities in the aftermath of violence. So that shift in roles from prior to the violence to post-violence is, is what, what catalyzes this process of women's mobilization throughout the country. Yeah, I really like how you sort of break it down in chapter three into three shifts. So you've got demographic shifts, economic shifts, and cultural shifts. Um, so I was hoping you could talk more about those three aspects. Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 argue the primary argument of the book is that war catalyzed really three interlapping and over overarching shifts. The first is a demographic shift, which was based on the, um, the the displacement of a huge percentage of the population from their homes, um, in, in addition to the um, disproportionate death, conscription, and imprisonment, really, of men in the aftermath of the violence. And what I argue is that this demographic shift led women to create new social networks as displacement forced people into new routines and to new modes of social interaction. And because of the absence of men, which put traditional gender roles within the household into flux. I then talk about um, a second shift, which was an economic shift triggered really by the massive economic kind of or macroeconomic collapse during war and exacerbated by the corresponding destruction of infrastructure and agricultural capacity. And so this in Rwanda meant that fields went fallow and um, women who had been primarily self-subsistence agriculturalists prior to the, to the violence were forced, forced to go off of their household plots of land to find food in new, new spaces because they weren't able to tend crops during the duration of the violence. And so this, this economic shift really led to urgent material needs among the population for food, water, shelter, and medical, medical care, which, as I said before, which catalyzed the formation of thousands of informal self-help groups to meet these urgent material and really emotional needs. Um, and I argue that these community organizations formalized and institutionalized a system of women's leadership at the grassroots level. Um, and they formalized in large part because of a process of institutional isomorphism where international NGOs that came, um, that were humanitarian NGOs or development NGOs that came um, and arrived in the country in the aftermath in an attempt to help the country transition from from war to stability um, really um, uh, 
modeled this, this kind of formal organizational structure, which then led to the replication of that formal structure amongst these more um, um, emergent grassroots organizations. And so I argue that this kind of institutionalization of the system of women's leadership at the grassroots level helped women develop self-reliance, encouraged profit-making activities, and really facilitated a shift also in how women controlled surplus income. So oftentimes, especially in the Rwandan case, we see women who actually hadn't had much of an interaction with cash um, before the violence. And then in the aftermath, because of the destruction of agriculture, we see the need to actually purchase food and to um, have control over cash income or the kind of um, uh, distribution of, of, of cash from international NGOs. I argue then that there was a third shift, which is like this cultural shift. Um, and and this, this in Rwanda um, was a reflection of the fact of, of a couple things. But one was this reflection of the fact that women's participation in community organizations became increasingly common during the war and in the aftermath. And as such, this sort of cultural understanding of who constituted a legitimate public actor shifted. So there, this idea that in, in kind of prior to the violence, as one of my one of my interviewees said, you know, politics was like a male bedroom. It was only it was really just for them, right? In the aftermath, there was this idea that um, that I think is is a challenging one to deal with, um, especially for myself as somebody with a, with an orientation in in feminist scholarship. Um, this idea that women were more peaceful than men was really juxtaposed with by the women themselves with men's propensity for violence and this idea in Rwanda but also in Bosnia that that women had not been responsible for the bad politics that had brought about the violence to begin with and um, you know this doesn't take away from the fact that many women were complicit in the violence and that many women also perpetrated genocide in Rwanda although at a much 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 smaller and, and lower level than, than men. Um, but this idea here was that this cultural shift allowed for women to increasingly um, raise their voices and emerge as legitimate leaders, even of informal community organizations. Um, and I think that when we when we look at that shift in, in conjunction with the economic shift and the demographic shift, we see a, these three shifts leading to this informal political mobilization of women, which I talk about as this fourth major shift, which is really, which is really the core argument of the book, is that these, these the combination of demographic, economic, and cultural shifts facilitated or precipitated the increased mobilization of women in, in, their, in their households, in their communities. And then with the arrival of a, of a regime that was, that was interested in, in promoting women um, for a variety of, of kind of other reasons, um, we see the, the, the formalization of women's political mobilization in Rwanda in particular. What I found was really interesting is that a lot of these groups, as you point out in chapter four, started out like basically as informal support groups, right? Like they were looking for support from each other and then they sort of developed into these income generating groups and these other uh, grassroots and grassroots groups and NGOs and things like that. So I was hope hoping you could sort of talk about that progression. Of um, absolutely. So I, you know, the, the, the book tries to center the, the stories of individual women. So maybe I can answer that question in, in some ways by, by telling you about some of these women that I spoke with. Um, for instance, there was a, um, a woman named Noemi who was born in the south of Rwanda in the early 1960s. And I start chapter four with this story. Um, she had attended university. She had majored in sociology, actually, and she was um, married and became a teacher. Um, and when the genocide broke out in 1994, her husband was killed. And so she described to me, she said, you know, with, with a tremendous amount of frustration, she says, she says, I was married to a successful man. I thought he would give me anything to do anything for me. But after the genocide, it was different because my husband was dead and I was the head of the house. So I had to do everything that was the same for the kids as when their dad was around. I wanted them to have the same things when only I am around. Now, Noemi talks about how she joined a widow's organization in the aftermath of the violence. And for three years after, after 1994, she worked really hard for that organization. And as she put it, people really getting to know me. So people in her community then approached her and encouraged her to join politics. And she described to me how she really used to hate politics. She said, I thought politics was just a bunch of lies. 
But in the aftermath of the genocide and the aftermath of the death of her husband, she described how she was really motivated to make a difference. And so she thought about it and she said, all right, well, why can't I join politics and, and start to try to help out my country? And so she she began this process of, of um, running for office and, and started off at the very local level in a sector position. Um, and then she went on to kind of become the mayor of this, of this small area. And then eventually, kind of years later, she now sits in parliament. So this, this transition in, in Noemi's life from being a teacher to being a member of parliament, um, I argue, exemplifies the way that war can serve as a period of rapid transformation in ordinary women's lives. Um, with her level of, of education in particular and her status as a whim, widow, she was biographically well positioned to take um, this leadership role all the way from the grassroots up to the national political realm. Um, and so while Noemi's story is sort of this, it illustrates in many ways this, this very, very kind of um, formal process of women's political mobilization or, or political power, I, I, I really, I would say that, that her experience is not typical, um, uh, hundred, but that said, you know, thousands of other Rwandan women also experienced shifts in their political engagement that manifested in, in less formal political spaces during and after the violence. So I, I talk a lot about kind of this process through which women who, who identified the need for basic kind of basic support, whether it was emotional support or financial support, how this catalyzed a, 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 um, a decision to seek out others in their communities um, where they could actually find that support. And, and sometimes, you know, one, one woman I spoke with des- described that the biggest thing she needed um, in the aftermath of the violence was, was iron sheets for the roof of her house. You know, she, she, was, she was fairly well off and, and fairly well positioned, but she needed, she needed something to keep the rain out of her house, quite literally. And, you know, before the war, she described how this, this, this would have been something that was her husband's job, you know, that her husband would have been in charge of finding the roof, but her husband was dead. And so for her, it became a process of trying to navigate an entirely new um, kind of uh, social reality, whereby she had to find out how to afford metal sheets, how to actually install them on the roof of her house, where to find the support to do so, and so on. And so she joined together with other women in her community who, who had the same need. And they they formalized, they, they formed this very kind of informal organization where they we began to petition this international NGO that had a had a feeding program, I believe, in that um, in that community or nearby. They began to p- petition um, actual representatives from that international NGO um, to give them these iron sheets that they needed for their for their houses and eventually they were successful they received the the iron for the for the for their roofs and then and then because of the success they felt emboldened and encouraged that if they if they potentially um, actually named their organization and created a leadership structure where um, one of them was appointed president one was appointed best vice president and so on if they wrote a mission statement and so forth they could actually register formally as an organization that could then apply to various uh, grant opportunities from international NGOs and then this process of sort of needing something so basic as as a roof for, for one's house, then then catalyzed these um, these women in particular to really get engaged um, with with others in their community and work together. To, and then uh, this this organization that resulted became a organization that could could work more broadly. Um, on more broad issues, so not just on economic needs of women, but actually could begin to lobby for women's rights, could be a space for, for psychosocial therapy and other sort of, um, uh, you know, um, uh, grief and trauma, uh, counseling and conversations around loss and so forth. And so uh, this, this process of kind of mobilization happens, I argue, through these, these informal emergent self-help organizations. And that, that process is really the key process that allows for women's engagement um, kind of in new roles during and in the aftermath of, of, of widespread atrocities. So then um, in the second half of the book, you move on to Bosnia. Um, and so I was hoping you could sort of provide a similar history for us um, so that we can understand the setting that this is happening in. 
Absolutely. So, um, of course, you know, I, 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 again, attempt one of the, one of my goals in writing this book was to provide enough history of both of the cases so that the book could be assigned to classes, um, without any additional context on either of these cases. Um, so there's, there's, there's quite a bit of historical overview of the Bosnia case as well. And, and again, I trace the status of women in Bosnian history, um, through the last century and a half, um, and, um, focus primarily on shifts in women's roles and women's status during Yugoslavia, during the period of Yugoslavia, and then during the transition um, away from a socialist system of, of governance towards um, uh, uh, the, the reforms that, that came after Bosnia and Croatia and Slovenia's independence in the early 1990s, um, which of course triggered the war that then followed. Um, I One of the things that is important to note in the Bosnian case is that the war had many different dynamics in different parts of the country. And so in both, I should say, in both Rwanda and in Bosnia, I, I have um, three primary sites um, where I did where I did the majority of, of the of the field work. And so in the capital cities um, in both countries, I you know I have a, a large percentage of my interviews in the capital cities, but I also focus on two rural sites or not rural sites, but two other sites in both um, in both cases. So in Bosnia, I look at um, the the area. Um, uh, around Priador, um, which is in the Kraina region of kind of northwestern Bosnia. Then I also look at the Drina Valley and specifically look at the the, the people from the area around Potocari and Srebrenica that were then pushed towards Tuzla and other parts of, um, the, of, of Bosnia because of the massive ethnic cleansing that unfolded um, along the Drina Valley. And so I, I, I describe in many ways the, the ways in which women were made particularly vulnerable during the war in Bosnia through, again, sexualized violence and other forms of harm, um, as, along with how um, sex-selective massacres in Bosnia really characterized much of, of the violence. And this meant that way more men died in Bosnia um, than women during the war. And this is different from Rwanda. In Rwanda, 56% of the dead in Rwanda were 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 men, but in Bosnia that number was perhaps as high as ninety percent. Um, and so, what we see in in as a result of the war in Bosnia is this massive sort of demographic imbalance um, of of you know a, a kind of a loss of men, not just through disproportionate death, but also through this this disproportionate. Um, uh, um, mobilization of men in, in armed armed groups throughout the, the period of time around the war, um, and so many men that were um, that were conscripted needed to go and fight in the war, leaving behind their their families um, and and women oftentimes to care for in the very kind of traditional set, traditional sort of expected gender roles to care for for children and the elderly, um, and so um, I I. I talk in, in this, the kind of the historical chapter about the differences and the different dynamics of violence in different parts of the country before shifting towards the next chapter, where like in, in Rwanda, I talk about the demographic, economic and cultural shifts um, that occurred as a result of the war in Bosnia. And what was so interesting to me is that um, I... I, I began the Bosnia research a couple years after I had been doing the, the Rwanda research. And what I found was surprisingly similar between the cases and that um, we, because of this, this sort of um, urgent needs that, that women faced during and in the immediate aftermath of violence, we see this mushrooming of, of emergent grassroots community organizations, um, oftentimes led by women and oftentimes for women, um, designed to secure food, water, shelter, healthcare, a space for grief, a space for um, uh, helping each other, a space for um uh, generating momentum to begin to lobby elected officials, international actors, the UN, and so forth for for things like information about where their loved ones were buried. And so, um, you know, like I, I, I kind of talked about Ignatian at the beginning, I, I, you know, there are many stories of, of women in Bosnia that, that exemplify a similar process. I, I talk about, for instance, just one woman named Kada, who was a, a factory employee during the war, and um, she became separated from her family uh, during, during, the, during the bloodshed. And she had, she, 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 she said how she was, she was just full of questions during, during the war. And she was constantly questioning, you know, where are 
these people that that I love? You know, are they are they alive? Are they in prison? Where are they? And these questions motivated her to to join together with others that had the same questions about their loved ones. And so Kata talked about um, when the war came to an end, she realized that her worst fears were, were likely true. Both her husband and her son had been killed um, during the violence. And she was from the region around Srebrenica. And so she she described how she joined together with others who who had who had who feared the worst, but who had not actually located the bodies of their loved ones. And so they began to lobby the government for for information. Um, they Kata told me, you know, at one point she believed that protests were the only way to be heard. And so she organized with other women to um, to you know use their shared grief to demand that politicians reveal the locations of their loved ones' bodies and and there were many missing in in Bosnia still to this day over a thousand people still that have not been found since the, the violence. Um, I, I interviewed many members of the organization Kata Zaparta, which is a very well-known organization now. And um, and this other this other woman described how um, you know at the beginning of the war we were just housewives and we were raising kids and our husbands were in charge of providing food for us. But today, she said, every powerful person that comes to Bosnia wants to talk to us. So this, these, like the stories in Rwanda, these stories in Bosnia complicate these narratives that depict women only as the victims and spoils of war. And so really this, this, this book is designed to kind of better explore and to theorize how women like Ignatian, like Kata, and like so many other women I spoke with experienced war, bear, kind of witnessed its effects, and then exert agency and power in ways that are so often obscured by journalistic coverage and by conventional scholarship on women in war. Well, it's kind of interesting, like in chapter six, you talk a lot about displacement, but also new social networks, right? Like these women were making new social networks. Um, and something I found really interesting also from that chapter was that you said NGOs were actually non-existent or basically non-existent in Bosnia before the war and women really led that change there. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. Absolutely. So during the socialist era in, in Bosnia, or I should say in Yugoslavia, um, and most NGOs that existed were, were part of the, the political uh, fabric of, of the country. So they were t- tightly tied to the, 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 the government and they were not autonomous civil society organizations. And then what we see during the, the war and in the aftermath of the war, and really through the end of the 1990s, is this rapid formation of community-based organizations in Bosnia that I argue... Um, eventually comprise a really a parallel power structure to that of the state where organizations that are seen as non-governmental actually take on many of the same responsibilities that a state might normally provide, like providing um, healthcare, like providing schools, like providing um, psychosocial trauma support and so forth. So um, these organizations became at the forefront of many of the, of the, of the peace building efforts of the transitional justice efforts and of the, of the kind of reconciliation efforts in the aftermath of war. And they really represented a departure from the past. Now there's no good, data that exists on um, how many organizations really did form in either Rwanda or Bosnia during the violence. And yet there are quite a few studies that, that sort of posit these estimates. And the estimates are, are, are massive. Um, in Rwanda, some of the estimates are that some somewhere like 50,000 organizations had formed in the aftermath of the war. And in Bosnia, um, the estimates are a bit, I think, a bit better. And they, they suggest that up, upwards of 1,600 or so organizations formed um, throughout the course of the war and in the aftermath. And, and as I describe in this book, the, the, the catalyst for the formation of many of these organizations was oftentimes around something very informal, um, the need to secure something like the iron sheets that I mentioned um, prior. Um, in Bosnia, um, there was so much displacement, you know, a, a, about 50% of the population was displaced from their homes. And this led women to actually be congregating or, you know, even, you know, sleeping and living in, in completely different social quarters than they would have been living in before. So you have women living in um, schools um, as they are displaced. These schools were turned into IDP camps. Um, or you have people congregated along refugee camps in the border, across the border in Croatia, um, uh, or some, you know, in the area around Zagreb in Croatia as people fled Bosnia during the armed conflict. And, and what I found um, were so many stories of women living in these, in these periods, of, in these 
you know, these um, situations of displacement, talking about how boredom was a real thing. You know, there was this need to serve, there was a need to survive and secure um, basic goods for one's family. But then women that had been lawyers, who had been teachers, who had been, um, you know, farmers prior to the, their displacement found themselves idle. And so oftentimes this catalyzed a, a, a sense of, um, you know, well, what can we do to, to, to pass the time to distract ourselves from um, the, the, the fear and the worry about where, what happened to our loved ones and to begin to actually establish some degree of normalcy in our lives and in our children's lives and so forth going forward. And so a lot of these organizations did everything from, you know, needlework projects and knitting to a very ambitious, um, you know, uh, uh, like, you um, uh, they actually, you know, uh, political projects where there was an attempt. Um, one of the organizations I talk about at some length in the book um, began really in a in a refugee camp in Croatia, and um, and and it, quite interestingly, I think strategically framed itself from the beginning as a women's organization that was apolitical. And this this organization oftentimes talk about talked about like the, its leaders oftentimes talked about the fact that they were not engaged in a political project. What they wanted to do is just live and and to bring beauty back into the to the areas where they had been displaced from. So as members of this organization began to return to their homes that had been destroyed during the war and actually began to return to a, a small town outside of Priador, um, which was now under the the um, uh, the new, uh, it's, I should say that the Dayton Accords that ended the war in Bosnia divided the state into two entities, the the um, the uh, federation and then what is called Republika Srpska. So there's sort of the, the Bosniak and Croat federation um, occupies 51% of the territory. And then the Serb, the, the Republika Srpska occupies 49% of the territory. And so there's completely separate government structures, although there's also a national level government as well. But so this particular women's organization um, wanted to return to their hometown, which became, was part of the, of the country that was um, under Republika Srpska. So it was um, uh, under control of Serb authorities. And, and these women were, were Bosniak women. So they were Bosnian Muslim women. And they, they, they did this very interesting thing, I think, and really a powerful thing that they still do to this day, which is that they they actually repopulated this town um, and began to erect um, memorials and symbols of their loss, which which would be seen as incredibly um, po political and incredibly um, provocative in the current kind of political co uh, climate in that in that part of the country. But because they framed it as being women's work, they were able to sort of strategically use this kind of gendered essentialist idea of women's kind of non-political or apolitical or, or more peaceful nature to actually engage in a highly contentious political project, which was about refugee resettlement and ethnic resettlement settlement within a within a um a kind of a politically contentious zone so i talk you know that's 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 just one of many examples of, of kind of the the range of topics and the range of ways in which organizations that formed during and after the war really did um shape the dynamics of that transition from war to peace and 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 they served as the primary site through which women engage in in what i call political mobilization well, that's great because that leads to my next question, which is actually about political mobilization. And here you also had a really powerful quote from, I think her name is pronounced Nora, Nora, a widow. Um, and she said, our pain, our pain organized us. And I thought that that was such a powerful way to present that. And so I was hoping you could talk about this sort of political mobilization in Rwanda and Bosnia. Absolutely. You know, in the book, I draw on a theoretical perspective that that um, draws heavily from um, Laila Abu-Lagod, from Asaf Bayat, and really from James Scott as well, where I, I talk about how the ordinary activities of, of a subaltern, of, of kind of ordinary people, can be political, even if they don't look like our understanding of formal politics, that they can accumulate kind of like stepping stones um, to achieve some sort of political change. And, um, and so, you know, in, in both Rwanda and Bosnia, this process of political mobilization that I'm interested in is the way in which women eroded expectations of their, of their gendered roles. 
they the way in which they challenged um, existing patriarchal um, structures, the way in which they lobbied for their increased rights and visibility in spaces where they had been sidelined in the past, and. Um, and and I and I I think that what became so clear throughout the course of this project is that in both cases we see the way in which war catalyzed women's political mobilization through these sort of daily daily kind of shifts in their in their lives um, and the new burdens and expectations um, that that they faced as a result both of the kind of cataclysmic violence and destruction um, during during the wars but also as a result of these demographic um, economic and cultural shifts related to kind of women's power um, and you know Nura, Nura's comment that you that you mentioned about how our pain organized us was a theme that 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 links so many of my interviews together. Um, I I cannot I cannot um, I think I should say I think it's important to emphasize that throughout the book and throughout my research it was it was not to say that women were grateful for these opportunities and these increased opportunities for for political participation or kind of agency. Oftentimes there was a true sense of frustration and, um, and, 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 and horrendous loss and difficulty. Life is so difficult for so many women in Rwanda and Bosnia today. And the, the, the idea that their, their political fortitude and political mobilization stem so directly from loss and from pain, I think is, is an important um, way to nuance and to caution the the kind of overarching kind of simple read of the argument I make in this book. Um, the the way in which pain organizes can actually be, I mean it it, it can take myriad forms. I I um I talk in the book about um you know one one Rwandan woman who after losing her husband talked about how survival at home is just a hassle. You know you become a father and a mother. Um, she she was so frustrated about this new responsibility. She, while it had pushed her into these new community organizations, and it actually led this particular woman to to hold a leadership role, um, uh, in, you know, in a, a formal political leadership role. This was not something that she saw as an opportunity. She she, she was very um, um, frustrated by it. Um, in in Bosnia, um, a woman that I that I interviewed actually several times over the course of this research, and I still talk to um, often. Um, Described, I, I remember sitting at her house for an entire afternoon where she described the agony of searching for her son's remains. And this woman was was um, one of the few women who was imprisoned at Omarska concentration camp in Bosnia, which was a, one of the most kind of infamous and 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 and, and um, brutal concentration camps during the Bosnian war. And, and she was subjected to, to numerous forms of torture, including rape during her captivity there. Um, and Yet she never wanted to talk about that with me. What she always wanted to talk about was her son and how she had not found her her son's remains. Um, and she described how every single time a mass grave is discovered in Bosnia, she actually quite literally drives uh, to the location and runs to the grave and has at times tried to dig through the dirt with her own hands, hoping, hoping, hoping beyond all hope that she's going to be able to find her son's remains. And this this idea of this deep pain, this idea that, you know, this woman won't even speak to the, the suffering she, she experienced because as she put it so many times to me, that pales in comparison to the suffering that, that, that she feels as a result of not having a grave to go to, not having bones to pray over and to, and to fully sort of allow her mourning to come full circle. I mean, that, that is what caused, led, forced, really, this woman to, um, to join together with others to, to protest um, government corruption and government uh, refusal to actually systematically track down where these graves might be located. It, it caused her to, um, to cut, she, she fled and lived for many years outside of Bosnia, but comes back every year to maintain ties to the land so that she can find some sort of um, peace really with this, this feeling of disconnection that she feels because of her, because of this kind of lack of knowing around what happened to her son. So, so the, the heaviness that is that was present in so many of the interviews that I conducted with so many of these women. I think you know, 
is 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 absolutely what drives so much of their of their kind of political um, political mobilization and political agency. But it is also what I think um, uh, must be kind of centered in any sort of conversation around the impact of war on women, because it really is is it really was um, uh, you know remarkably and overwhelmingly sad. And then in chapter eight, you sort of bring this up in terms of that, even though, you know, these women were able to mobilize in many, many positive ways, they also had some limitations. There were limitations in terms of the what you uh, talk about as the hierarchies of victimhood or even backlash against what they were doing. So I was hoping you could talk about those. Absolutely. So, so, you know, in the first two thirds of the book, I really explore this idea of how war can create unexpected opportunities for women to engage in their communities and, and their households and in the national kind of political space in, in new ways as a result of the war. But in chapter eight, as you note, um, I, I talk about how um, much of this progress and many of the gains that women did make were undermined by what I, what I talk about as three things, um, three processes, which are, which are in no way um, the only three things that undermined uh, or kind of fractured women's organizing, but three things that came to the forefront of my interviews. And, I, and, and this is really the subject of a lot of my research since this project um, is kind of further understanding um, the ways in which um, seemingly emancipatory uh, strategies or policies or women's empowerment efforts can create new and unattended forms of oppression. Um, and I think that chapter eight in many ways is the most important chapter of the book. Um, and it is, um, it is the one that really uh, cautions against an easy reading of, of the, of the earlier parts of the book, which, which really look at kind of war as a period of, of, of social transformation for, for gender roles. So I, I, I argue in chapter eight that, that three things um, undermined uh it set back women's progress. The first was um, was a was the structure of the political settlement, um, which you know included in Rwanda the military victory of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, a primarily Tutsi army, um, and in Bosnia included the Dayton Accords, which was a, a formal peace process, of course orchestrated by the international community that completely shut women out of the negotiations. And in both of these political settlements, what we see is the creation of, um, uh, of, of a, a simplified narrative of violence, which allows particular groups to be seen as victims and particular groups to be seen as perpetrators. And these, these simplified categories map onto ethnic categories, which is um, a way of flattening the complexity of the lived experience that so many people had during, during the armed conflict itself. And so, for instance, in Rwanda, what we see is um, the, uh, the, the, the direct connection between being Tutsi and being a survivor and being Hutu and being seen as, as suspicious or as guilty of, of, of criminal behavior during, during the genocide. And, and this, gets, this gets codified um, in, in myriad ways in the aftermath of the violence. It gets codified through the way in which um, the, the, the regime itself actually says that one has to have, that you get certified as being a survivor and this entitles you to particular benefits, entitles you, you know, to um, social, social uh, welfare benefits, um, education benefits, um, other forms of psychosocial support and aid. Um, and, and yet these that being a survivor required that one was Tutsi. And the, the, the problem with this is that it, it, it completely eliminates the forms of suffering experienced by non-Tutsis during in the aftermath of the violence. And, and I talk about in the book and much of the recent scholarship on Rwanda, you know, expands upon this much more kind of in, in much more depth. But the, the, the genocide occurred in Rwanda alongside a um, in which the Rwandan Patriotic Front was complicit in many atrocities, and so there were there are many Hutu Rwandans that, that suffered tremendously during during the war. And so, by denying them an ability to, to even mourn their dead in public, by denying Hutu survivors of violence an ability to grieve, to um, access services, to testify in court about their own suffering or the loss of their own loved ones or the injustices that 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 that, that members of their family um, experienced during the violence. We've created a hierarchy of victimhood in Rwanda, which which allows for, for, for particular forms of grief to be seen as salient and, and other ones not. And what I argue um, in this case and in a similar process unfolded in Bosnia as well, 
is that this worked to fracture women's organizing by dividing women that maybe during and in the kind of in the immediate aftermath of violence had a lot of shared interests around their kind of um, urgent material needs and other shared gender interests in the more you know legal or policy realm around um, the need to advocate or lobby for inheritance rights or um, to advocate for reform of, of some of the family law provisions. Um, instead, what this happened was what happened was that women's organizations that had formed had to become monoethnic to be able to even um, maintain their viability or or secure any sort of international aid. And so we see basically the Tutsification of Rwandan civil society in the aftermath of the of the genocide, where Hutu women's um, uh, experiences were actually um, actively suppressed, or I should say, Tutsi women's organizing was actively suppressed for a variety of reasons. And in and, and, and in Basia, you know, just to kind of summarize the the main point here, um, I I talk about a hierarchy of victimhood which had similar ethnic uh, ties in in in, in Basia, in which um, Bosniak or Bosnian Muslim, um, uh, Bosnian Muslims were seen as the as the kind of primary victims, and Serbs were seen as the primary aggressors, which of course again flattens many of the logic of violence throughout the course of the war. And um, the other thing that happened in Bosnia was was kind of twofold. One was the elevation of women with particular victim identities over other women. So this is women that were widows, women that were survivors, and, and, and primarily women that were survivors of rape or, or mothers of those that had been killed. And so um, whereas many of the organizations that I, I spoke with some of the founders of, um, these organizations that had formed during it and, and in the immediate aftermath of the war had actually consisted of women with different war experiences. So they had women that, you know, that had, um, you know, not lost anyone in their family, women that had um, fled very early on and, and had spent the war in Belgium, but had come back, um, you know, or it had, had been, in, you know, kind of come back to the refugee camps at some point. Um, together with women that had survived rape, together with women that had, um, you know, survived displacement, together with women that had lost sons or husbands during the war. They, these the way in which, um, and this kind of gets to the second major part of the argument um, in this chapter eight, but the way in which the political settlement and international humanitarian aid intervened um, in the aftermath of, of the war in Bosnia privileged particular victim identities over others. And so we see how funding was really allocated to organizations that targeted or that were primarily comprised of women that were raped or women that were mothers or, or, or wives of those men that had been killed. And so this, this created incentives for these organizations to actually kick out some of the women that didn't have experiences um, of rape or of uh, loss in the same way. And um, the, 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 I should say that the kind of the, the other element to this is that we also see in the Bosnian case an elevation of the massacre at, at the genocide at, at Srebrenica over all other sort of episodes of of violence throughout the war. And so I talk a bit about the comparison between the, the international aid and attention that's gone to Srebrenica in the aftermath of the war. And that continues to this day um, in comparison to the attention that's been given to the Priodor region um, or the Kraina region, which also suffered tremendous amounts of loss and ethnic cleansing and brutality during war. Um, and yet has not been called a genocide by the international community nor by a, a, you know, a, 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 um, a series of kind of court decisions. And thus what we see see is Srebrenica, which is kind of widely considered to be this classic case of genocide within the Bosnian War, um, gets much more attention, elevating the status of those victims over victims from the Priodor area. And I, I, I talk about how, um, you know, kind of um, beyond the, the moral and ethical dilemmas that are at play in, in that process and the complicity of international actors in constructing these hierarchies, what is really um, the result at, at the end of the day is that much of the, much of the organizing that that women were doing fractured and there were all these barriers that were put up for women to be able to organize cross-ethnically and even cross-country, cross-regionally because of the, the kind of these hierarchies that emerged, which, which, which de devoted resources and, and, and attention 
uh, towards particular groups at the expense at the expense really of, of, of others and the silenced others um, other other experiences of violence so this that that is a, a bit of a long answer to, to the kind of first first part of chapter eight and I'll just quickly say about the two other things one one was the, the second the second element which you know is tied to this construction of hierarchies of victimhood is the way in which the arrival of international humanitarian aid um, uh, in both cases privileged um, particular interventions that did not center the lived experiences or the voices or expertise or knowledge of women in either Rwanda or Bosnia in the aftermath of violence. And as a result, created um, kind of, uh, I think, oftentimes um, incentives or, or initiatives that actually undermined much of the work that women were already doing in their communities and thus limited the, the ability for um, these nascent and emergent women's, women-led organizations to fully formalize and become viable actors in civil society, which I, I argue would better support transitions from war to peace in the future if, if um, women's organizations were given better platforms and, and, and um uh, really uh, power to make determinations about, for instance, about how international aid is, aid is allocated at the local level. Um, um, there's much more to say about that, but I'll just quickly say that the, the third part of the argument in Chapter 8 is, is about a revitalization of patriarchy in the aftermath of armed conflict. I talk a bit about how patriarchal um, expectations and the patriarchal status quo in many ways is in flux during periods of armed conflict. And this is because of the of the kind of demographic, economic, and, and cultural shifts that I talk about during, during the earlier parts of the book. But in the aftermath of armed conflict, as feminist scholars have been have been um, detailing for years, there is this hardening of uh, and kind of a reemergence of patriarchal um, expectations, pushing women back into the home. And um, once again, uh, seeing kind of the, the militarized kind of ethos of, of masculinity as a, as a form of post-war sort of um, uh, uh, legitimacy. And thus this kind of um, growing and, and, and increasing sort of marginalization of the, the way in which women's kind of um, assertion that they were more peaceful actors during the war, the way in which that becomes sidelined kind of as the years go on in the aftermath. And in a particular interest, and I think of, of particular importance, is the way in which we see in both cases, although although pre-war baselines, I should say, are extremely difficult to, to identify we, uh, related to domestic violence, we do see um, a lot of evidence in both cases of an uptick in gender-based violence or intimate partner violence in the aftermath of, 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 of the wars in both cases. And, and this is a result, you know, of, of, of many things, including, you know, trauma, including the increased availability of weapons. And, and for many of my interview respondents, something that came up often was the increased use of alcohol and drugs in the aftermath of, of war by their, by their spouses and male family, family members. And so we, in my interviews, what came out so profoundly is that actually many of the, the women that were beginning to be the loudest voices for women's rights in their communities or who are really beginning to kind of actually um, stake claims about uh, the importance of women's leadership in, in politics or in, in community life, that these women were actively sort of policed um, by, by intimate partners or by others in their communities where they were um, threatened and, and uh, kind of pushed back in some ways into kind of more traditional expected gender roles in the aftermath. And so I, I, you know, I, I caution that these three things, this, the way in which political settlements creates hierarchies of victimhood, the way in which international humanitarian aid fails to center the knowledge and expertise of women at the grassroots, and the way in which patriarchy can be revitalized in the aftermath of war and, and actually reflect the sort of patriarchal backlash to women's gains, that these three things combined to undermine in many ways the political mobilization that did that did emerge during and after the, the, the wars in both Rwanda and in Bosnia. To sort of wrap up um, your book here for us, in the conclusion, you sort of point back to the three shifts that you mentioned earlier, which are like the demographic shifts, economic shifts, and cultural shifts. And something else that I really liked about your conclusion chapter was you point out some theoretical contributions as well. So I was hoping you could give us some takeaways in terms of the book overall, but also in terms of thinking about um, these issues theoretically. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the book, as to, in terms of the theoretical takeaways of the book, I, I, I really aimed 
the the book, you know, the title of the book is is a kind of a play on um, on on Tilly, this idea of from mobilization to revolution. Um, and you know, when I, what I talk about in the subtitle of the book, from violence to mobilization, in many ways is is a is is um, is a way of, of attempting to kind of look through a historical institutionalist framework about the way in which this period of kind of massive upheaval can create institutional change in, in the long run. And I'm, I, I think that w- w- when, while this book focuses on looking at the way in which war can structure kind of change around the, the kind of the dominant gender regime, I think that there's a lot of lessons for the way in which um, a, a better theorization of, of war is not only a period of, of destruction, but is also a period of transformation, the way in which we can really um, gain a lot of analytical kind of um, purchase by, 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 taking, by taking this period of, of, of kind of destruction seriously. I also, um, you know, want to, um, uh, you know, really, I think, add um, a, a, a add to the conversation on, on social movements and contentious politics with this book um, by talking about how um, really our traditional sort of more Western understanding of politics dis- obscures really more diffuse and, and less formal spaces of, of political mobilization. And, and so this focus in the book on everyday politics um, allows, I argue, for a more nuanced and rich understanding of, of women's lives in particular and how women engage in political and political life. Um, I also, I think that the book speaks to the women, peace and security agenda more broadly, um, which is, uh, which is, you know, a, a, really a, a, a kind of a, a strong um, initiative, particularly in the wake of UN Resolution 1325, which was passed in 2000, to include women in all capacities in transitions from violence to stability. And, and, I, and I argue, you know, very strongly that women's inclusion in these transitions is, is incredibly important and will build more durable peace in the aftermath of armed conflict. But what we, but what I, I think the book shows and chapter eight in particular shows is that oftentimes this process is complicated and the way in which we often, with the way in which international actors have traditionally championed women's inclusion um, especially women's inclusion in peace processes or women's inclusion in politics in the aftermath of conflict is, is not necessarily sufficient to understanding um, the, or it's not really capturing in many ways, the real strength of women's organizing during war. And so the Rwandan case is really instructive because the the inclusion of women in Rwanda's politics is in many ways, this, um, this distraction from the fact that the the state is has increasingly kind of become authoritarian over the years and the way in which the executive and president Paul Kagame have, have full control over government decisions. The legislature is, is just in many ways for show. Um, although I, I wouldn't go that far, but it's, but it is in many ways, not a powerful branch of the government. Um, I think that it shows 